going to look at another story this morning. We've been looking for the past couple weeks at some stories from the Gospel of John, at people in different ways who were provided opportunities to lean into the light, or lean toward the light. And it's appropriate that we look at this particular story this week. It's John chapter 11. And if you have a Bible, you can open up to that section. Or you can pull it up on your phone. Or whatever your device is this morning. And this is a very appropriate story for us to look at the week before next week. Who knows what next week is? It is Palm Sunday already. And in addition to Palm Sunday, it's also sometimes the beginning of Passion Week. All of those steps of Jesus' journey to the eventual cross leading all the way to Easter. John has a very particular way of structuring his gospel account. And he likes to use big, bold images and contrasts. So when he talks about light, he usually talks about light and dark. He talks about good and evil. He tends to do these sorts of things. And one of the cool things that I like, especially about John's account, is the way that he humanizes Jesus. He really gives us a sense of the empathy that Jesus has for us. Regardless of what you think about some of the commercials or the background between some commercials, the whole idea of the Jesus, he gets us. The reason Jesus gets us is he is and was one of us. He fundamentally knows what it is like to be human. And yet he also can do what we cannot. And he went all the way to the cross. At this point in John's gospel, Jesus is nearing the final showdown. The final countdown. Something like that. All attempts to silence him so far have failed. And if you look back in John, he's actually just overcome two specific attempts to seize and stone him. John chapter 8 and John chapter 10. And both attempts are not successful because God is all-powerful, way-maker, miracle-worker, and all of the above. Following those two failed attempts in Jerusalem to seize him, Jesus actually decides, along with his disciples, to retreat back across the Jordan River. A little bit further away from Jerusalem, there's probably a variety of reasons that they do this, but far from a defeatist mentality, Jesus actually knows that there is something that his disciples need far more than safety right now. They need a resurgence in their faith. Because he knows that as he is preparing to die and then leave this earth, 
that their ability to believe in him will be paramount, critical, if the gospel message is to go forth. None of the twelve were looking forward to leaving the safety of the Jordan River. It allowed them a little bit of distance from Jerusalem and a physical barrier to cross for them to stay safe. In spite of that, they're willing to go with Jesus all the way to the end, or so they think at this point. We'll go with you all the way, Jesus. They don't fully know what's coming, but they know what it will take. So let's lean in this morning to explore the power of John 11. I'm going to read the first 16 verses, and then we'll read it in a few sections this morning. John chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And if you go actually to the next chapter, chapter 12, you can read that account. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, what do you think he did? He stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas's words there kind of represent their overall feelings about Jesus' desire to return to Jerusalem, they see it as the end for them. And maybe it's a combination of boldness and some other things. Maybe it's a little bit of bluster. But at some point, they say, and even though they don't really know what's going on, 
okay, Jesus, you want to go back to the place where they've tried to kill you a bunch of times already? We'll go with you. But they're resigned to the fact that it's probably going to mean their deaths as well. At least they think. I've said this before about Thomas. He gets a bad rap as doubting Thomas. I like him as Thomas the realist. <laughs> the delay in returning after the news that Lazarus lays dying, however, while it might be confusing for them and they clearly don't know what's going on or why Jesus is doing the things he's doing, it's part of his plan overall to strengthen their belief because Jesus actually knows that he has little time left here on earth. And he knows that if his disciples are to continue the work, they need to be as strong as they can be. They need to have a faith that is unshakable. A faith that we just sang about. A certain belief in the waymaker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the light in the darkness. They need a kind of faith that will not be shaken even when things don't go perfectly right. They don't have that yet. Now there's a whole lot of confusion in the story and the impact or significance of Jesus' own declaration might even get a little bit lost in translation. Just like when you're having an intense conversation with someone and a lot of words come out and you might say something or they might say something and you don't quite understand the significance or you might even not remember that they said that particular thing, but you'll sure hear about it later. Jesus says that as well. This sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. He's clearly saying what's going to happen, and yet it's like they don't remember that part at all. They're just consumed by everything else that's going on. Resurrection power, the power over death, is and will be in this instance an essential part of Jesus' plan. He must display this kind of power for his disciples and for other people there to develop the kind of faith that they will need to carry on his work. Just as our belief in a resurrection from the dead is an essential part of our belief in Jesus, without it, we don't really belong to him. Jesus has already resolved that this is what he's going to do. I don't know that he's doing it just because he happens to be close friends with Lazarus, but he knows that this one act, this miracle, will make a significant impact in the lives of people, and most importantly, the people who will carry on the work. In the next part of the story, we actually see a variety of responses. All Jesus is really doing in this moment is he's giving people an opportunity to lean towards or away. He's presenting something that will require a response, and this is what he does for you and me as well. He presents the truth of who he is and all the power that God has. And then he leaves it up to people to make that decision. 
when we read on in this story, the second part, it's kind of like looking through a window at some of the first century customs around death and mourning. Death was a communal, public thing. It was not private mourning. It was not an occasion for one family to gather together and not let anyone else in, but it was a time for a public display of sorrow. Death was a community event. Mourning was something that people did together, not just alone in their own room. And in this second part, we see a variety of responses, including Mary and Martha and some of the other people who were there to support this family in their time of need. Let me read, starting in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. So it's like an excerpt of Jerusalem. Close enough, just far enough out, but close enough that things, that a lot of people could get there. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? How does she respond? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, was to come into the world. I'll stop there for now. We've heard from Mary and Martha before. And interestingly, this is almost like a reverse story. The ver- what do we normally associate with Martha? She's the one who was worried about all the details early on in the gospel. And Mary was the one who wanted to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him. And now it's almost like the complete opposite. Martha is the one who goes to him directly. And Jesus somehow gives her the straight truth. And she responds to his simple question. Verse 25 is one of Jesus' most important I am statements. See, we know that John presents seven miracles, and this is the seventh miracle, but he also presents all of those I am statements, like I am the bread of life. I am the light. And here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And when he asks her directly, do you believe this? She responds with a simplicity and clarity to her belief. We don't know how Jesus responds to her response, but it must have been enough for him. A simple affirmation that she trusted him. She believed in him. A couple of weeks ago, we said that trying to do more for God or to earn your keep in the kingdom of heaven will end up leaving you more tired and empty than when you started. You can never do enough to earn God's favor. And yet we still keep trying to do more and more and more, as if it's somehow going to have a different result. Instead, and here we see this, know that it is enough to believe and lean into the light. Allowing the presence of Christ to fill you with his power. And in that moment, it is his life that is both life and hope. It's as if you have an infilling of the life that Christ offers. This infilling is what will grow you and allow you to do all the things that you want to do in this life and especially for God. Allowing you to be and do all that God entrusts to you. Don't get me wrong, we like being doing people. But if we can't first be human beings, then we'll never be the doing people that God would have us to be. This is Martha, and this is her response, the one we normally associate with busyness and doing. Here, it's enough to say, yes, I believe. In the end, when given the opportunity, she leans toward the light, displaying a faith rooted in certain hope of resurrection. She has total hope that her brother will come back to life, even if she doesn't have personal experience at this point. It's the same for you and me. Do we have total hope in the resurrection of the body? Amen. I hope so. I hope so. This faith that she displays actually propels her to go back to her sister. And again, we see another response and several important emotions. This is typically the story, and in certain translations, that sometimes I think is a little whitewashed. Oh, Jesus, what a nice guy he was. But we'll look at that in just a second. Let me, st- let me keep reading. Verse 28. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
It's the same response that her sister had had just a few minutes, a few moments before. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I put a word in parentheses. If your Bible says deeply moved, the word is much deeper than that. He was angered in spirit and deeply troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? I never got the real sense growing up. I always got kind of the Sunday school version of this, that Jesus is just a nice guy. He always has that arm to lean around you, and he does. But in this case, he shows extremely strong emotions. Emotions that we don't sometimes want to believe that Jesus could or should show. And yet he does. Jesus was moved and deeply troubled. That doesn't quite convey the depth of emotion that he was going through and what he was feeling. After all he had shown, after all he had taught them, after all the miracles they had seen up to this point, and even what he had said specifically about this sickness, Jesus was indignant angered by what he now sees. Not that people were grieving, but that people were grieving as those without hope. The unbelief displayed here is what Jesus is angry at. The unbelief displayed in the presence of the one who has just said, I am the resurrection and the life. And y'all are acting like you have no hope right now. The one who had arrived to call their friend and brother from the grave. This deeply troubled Jesus. That people, especially those who should have known, didn't. They mourned like those without hope. And I imagine he's thinking, how are they going to share the good news without a firm faith rooted in their belief in me, the one who holds all power over life and death. Jesus' tears are certainly not tears of grief for Lazarus. He knows what's going to happen in just a moment. He already knew what he was about to do. He once again sees in the people and their unbelief that they are succumbing to the powers of this world. He sees the disorder that sin and death and the devil wreak upon this world. And it causes him to weep. The word weep is a deep word here. It's like a tsunami of emotion pouring out of Jesus at this moment. It'd be like the grieving of the Holy Spirit. It's 
like grief. Yeah, that might be a good way of thinking of it. Like a grieving of the Holy Spirit. In John's Gospel, Jesus is shown to display profound empathy and emotion. But not even his own people are immune to the power of death. What I like about John is that he doesn't stay with one. He likes to pair things together, like light and dark, like we said before. So he pairs Jesus' anger or indignation with his weeping or his own mourning over the sad state that fallen humanity is in. Even though he knows what's going to happen shortly. I imagine it would confirm his resolve to act in this moment And unfortunately, the people who were there didn't comprehend his tears. They think he's weeping over his friend. And some of them don't even think that he has any power to do anything at all. That's exactly what happens today in different ways. Jesus will do something and people always have the choice of whether to lean in toward the light or to turn back into the darkness. Let me read the last few verses for us. Starting in 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved. It's that same word, deeply angered in his spirit. Came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor. For he has been there four days. You can only imagine. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I imagine Jesus had an exasperated tone here. Did I not already tell you people what was going to happen? Did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? He probably felt this way pretty often. Because one thing it is, to be human is that we don't get things very quickly. We think we do, but how many times do we keep repeating the same mistakes? I know I do, and I'm sure you do as well. Sometimes we unfortunately don't get the lesson the first time. We need to repeat it over and over and over again. Did I not tell you? And in this moment, the complete power of God is shown. His mighty works displayed for all to see. And as is the case both then and now, people have a choice. 
And some who experienced and saw the power of God raised this man from the dead. Some of them leaned into the light. The very next verse said that some of the Jews that were there believed in Jesus. And others turned away and remained in the darkness. It says they actually ran back to the Pharisees and tattled on him. Look what this guy's doing. You better put a stop to this. Lazarus walked out of the tomb, foreshadowing the same power that Jesus would display in just a few short days. Giving them, this is just a little foretaste of what is to come when the power of God is fully manifested, when Jesus is resurrected. But not before what looms ahead of him. For there is no crown without a cross. And what Jesus invites each of us to lean into is the response of faith, just as it was for the people there. He gives us the same kind of choice. He reveals himself to us, and then he invites us. Are you going to lean into the light or turn away and remain in darkness? Jesus, I think, hopes that we would demonstrate that kind of belief, that belief in the unshakable, unchangeable power of God over everything both life and death and everything in between. When Jesus says, take away the stone, no one sees how that will help. Jesus, however, I think is simply asking, will you trust me? Trust me in this moment when you don't think it's possible for there to be any life spring forth. When there are situations going on around you or in your own heart where you're not sure, can anything good grow here? Because that is what faith is, a growing relationship of trust. Will you trust me? When we say, yes, Lord, I believe, I will, we grow. We orient ourselves to lean more and more into the light. You see, Jesus will take care of everything, doing what we cannot. And as the stone was moved, what does he do? He lifts his eyes and speaks out loud so that the people will know and believe that the Father sent him in the midst of pain and unbelief, and I'm sure all of the disappointment that he felt at times from his people. There is still the hope of glory. May that same hope propel you. May that same hope open your eyes to seek the light, to restore your life, and direct your steps to come on out of the tomb. Friends, let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. And for the role that your son Jesus carried out on this earth. Revealing the power of God. And calling us out of death 
and into life. I pray for your church this morning, both here and scattered around the world, that you would reveal yourself as the resurrection and the life. Help us to lean into you, Lord. May we feel your presence infuse us filling us with the power of your spirit, restoring what we don't think is possible, bringing life into situations and relationships and everything else where we don't think it's possible for life to happen. God, may it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to close with the, some of the most famous words in Scripture. It's, those, it's that verse that you always see in the background when the warriors are shooting their free throws and hopefully making them. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of of God. So church, as you go forth, go forth with God's blessing. Lean into his light to love and serve God and each other. Amen, amen.